Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by David Swift. His latest book, A Left for Itself, Left-Wing Hobbyists and Performative Radicalism, asks us to critically compare former labor-based labor movements with what he views as increasingly identity-based politics. Welcome to the New Books Network, David. Thanks, Susan. Great to be here. Uh, Your previous book for Class and Country, The Patriotic Left and the First World War, also engaged class, identity, and the left. Before we dive into the details of your really interesting book, A Left for Itself, tell me a little bit about how you came to write about leftist politics and the kind of expertise that you bring to this topic. Well, um, my uh, undergrad studies were in history, and I went on to do an MA and then PhD in history. Uh, And in fact, that uh, first book for Class and Country was based on my uh, doctoral thesis. And yeah, so that was right talking about the the British labour movement. Um, So labour unions and uh, the Labour Party and various socialist groups and women's suffrage groups. And I was talking, and, and my thesis was on their attitude to the First World War. And whilst it was specifically looking at that that war and that conflict, I think it had much broader implications for the relationship um, between the left and patriotism or the left and nationalism, uh, which I think are really key issues today, actually. Uh, And so, yeah, so, uh, you know, I am sort of post PhD. That was a few years ago now, you know, in the sort of academic job market. And I was thinking, given the uh, you know difficulties of acquiring a permanent academic position, it might be a good idea to try and branch out and see if I could become a professional writer. So I thought this idea of of what I'm talking about in in the next book, in this book, A Left for Itself, goes, um, you know, it, it was a natural departure from my academic study in history, where I'd been looking at the sort of base of socialism in the UK and uh, who supported these ideas and how they tried to, to, to enact their ideas. And I think that gave me a really great historical background to talk about these issues today and, you know, why the, the British Labour Party and, for that matter, the uh, US Democratic Party, uh, you know, seems to be quite far from, from actually taking power. Thanks so much. You look at Britain mostly, but you also look at the United States and Europe, and you you wonder why the recent crisis of capitalism is benefiting the nationalist right instead of the left. Um, That's the kind of the the sort of question that you begin with. Can you start us off by explaining, as you see it, the recent crisis of capitalism and the reaction you observe? You know, who is it who seems to speak from the left? Is it the people directly impacted by the crisis? Who who is it? Yes, I think that I think you've, you've hit on the real difficulty there, right? So since the the last financial crisis of uh, just about twelve years ago now, uh, you know we've seen uh, real t- uh, real term uh, living standards uh, in the developed world really flatline. Uh, you know, for middle class and working class people, we've seen uh, you know inequality between the the very richest and everyone else massively increase. Uh, Etc. And yet, in response to this, across the uh, sort of democratic world, it's usually been figures or parties or movements of the right who have actually benefited. And I think this is very interesting. And I think one of the reasons for this is perhaps that the sort of people who are most likely to be uh, activists on the left nowadays, right, whether we talk about uh, UK Labour Party members or the sort of more radical people who are getting into democratic politics, sorry, supporting the Democratic Party uh, over the past four years, it tends to be people who they themselves have not really suffered the most, right? There's all sorts of evidence to show that, uh, and this is even more um, noted in the UK, but the same in the US, 
that the types of people who get involved in left-wing politics are uh, more white than they should be, you know, disproportionately white, disproportionately well-educated, disproportionately uh, social economically privileged, actually. So they tend not to be the sort of people who have really suffered from, say, welfare cuts or, you know, violent policing over the past uh, 10 years or more. They tend to be people who are suffering, but not that acutely, really. So my argument is that the politics is motivated less by need and actually more by a sort of desire. And, and it's a desire for what? What, what do they want? Because I, 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 I love the way the book contrasts uh, this history of, of, of how people used to rise up because they were hurting, because they, they joined labor unions so that they could accomplish goals for themselves. But you seem to be speaking about, and actually you've got a great title, a great title just explains what the book is. And you're saying that they're, they're hobbyists. So how is it that they're hobbyists? What, what it, why would they do this? Yeah. So that's it. I mean, as I say, you know, not just labor unions, but if you think about, say, uh, African-American groups or uh, feminist uh, movements or LGBT movements, these were all people who were, you know, being discriminated against in many cases, uh, you know, beaten up and, and, and killed and so on and so forth, who had their civil and political rights often denied to them, uh, or people who were, you know, in real poverty and needed to change this and do something about it. Uh, and, you know, these group, great, uh, inspiring groups were all motivated by this very basic need. In contrast now, I think we see this situation whereby uh, the main activists, certainly when it comes to online activism of the left uh, in the developed world, are people who are not in any great need of immediate change right now. They, you know, they are people who, as a, as a form of hobby or pastime, have taken up politics. So as to what these people want from it, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's an open question. Because if they simply wanted power, you know, if they wanted to get their people in office and enact the change they want to see, well, I think they're often going the wrong way about it. You know, they seem to be acting in many counterproductive ways. So I think one element is just belonging. You know, just a sense of belonging. I think people like to be part of some form of community. And obviously, we've seen, uh, you know, traditional forms of community like religion, nation, uh, family, neighborhood, etc. decline. But people still want that form of community. So for a lot of, uh, you know, young, well-educated white people, hey, another form of community is the online activist community. You know, that way, wherever you're from, whoever you are, you can sort of subsume your individual identity and be part of something bigger and greater than yourself. Whether or not this group actually changes anything is almost besides the point. You know, the main part is, so the main point is actually the taking part. You know, we could see this going back to, say, like a lot of the um, the Occupy protests of, of a few years ago. Very often the people there, uh, you know, they don't, they'd be asked what do they want and they're not so sure about what they wanted, but the taking part itself, you know, the camping out in Zuccotti Park, the comradeship being part of it is an end in itself for many of these people. And yeah, I also think as well that um, politics is a hobby for so many people in the same way that, you know, NFL or soccer or uh, classical music or whatever is, is you know, can be a hobby. Uh, it's something that, you know, is a fun pastime. You can spend your time scrolling through your phone on social media, signing petitions, you know, watching C-SPAN or, or what have you. And yeah, it's something that you, you don't necessarily have to have any stakes in. You don't, you won't necessarily be affected by the outcomes of politics, but you can still participate, uh, you know, without even really paying the cost of admission to a sports ground or anything, you know, it's, it's completely cost-free. So I think there's that element as well that for some people, politics can provide a way to really entertain themselves uh, pretty cheaply without taking any risks. So you seem to have two elements um, running in parallel. One has to do with this being online, that this is not in person. And the second is that these people are not directly impacted. And so therefore, a lack of success doesn't impact their day-to-day life, though they may be able to attend, therefore, they may be able to uh, retain this identity of fighters for social justice, but the lack of success doesn't affect their everyday lives. So can you um, explain just a little bit more those two pieces? Are you saying that this new left is in part a failure because it's virtual and are 
and or are you saying that it's a failure because people don't have a real stake because it is a hobby, not their life that is at stake? Uh, I mean, I'd say it's a failure because of the methods used uh, and the methods used, which are often, you know, going for the sort of most uh, radical position and sticking to it, refusing compromise, using quite hostile language to your supposed enemies, um, all this sort of stuff where, you know, focusing on purity and consistency rather than persuasion, thinking compromise is a bad thing, all this sort of stuff. I think they, it's failing because of the methods that they use. And yes, the methods that they use or they use such methods, I would say, because of the two uh, big changes that you've mentioned. So, yeah, on the one hand, you've got the demographic shift in what the left is. Right. And I absolutely do not mean that it's becoming about, you know, it's go, it's going from simply being about, I don't know, working class white guys to all these myriad identity issues, because I think these identity issues are very important, by the way. Instead, what I'm saying is that lots of, uh, you know, straight white people, uh, straight white men in particular in the uh, you know 20s and 30s are choosing to appropriate the, you know, all of these different issues for themselves to make themselves seem cooler and more interesting and give themselves something to believe in. Uh, and also, this has been massively facilitated by the internet and in particular by social media, right? So, you know, people I'd talk to, um, historians and so on about this issue, they would say, ah, but, you know, it's always been like that, right? You know, back in the 60s uh, and earlier, there were plenty of people on the left who took a great deal of pride in their identity and actually the, the taking part was a big thing for them and all the rest of it. But I think because of the internet and, and social media in particular, you know, this has increased a million fold really, right? Where such a huge thing on social media, you know, you have your bio where you state what you are, right? And for so many people to state, you know, socialist, feminist, pro-Palestine, uh, pro-Cuba, pro-Venezuela, right? Uh, the, you know, he, her, she, uh, she, sorry, he or she or he, you know, their the pronouns, right? It's a very big deal for them to use this space to declare to everyone, these things are not just my politics. It's not just what I believe in. It's not just the change I want to see in the world. It's who I am, actually, you know, in the same way that uh, people might say, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan or whatever, or I'm a Catholic or I'm Hispanic or whatever. You know, so social media allows people in fact, it encourages people to create, you know, this online facade, this sort of idealized version of themselves where, you know, they're cooler than they are in reality. They go to great restaurants, they go nice places on vacation, etc. And the left uses this to, yeah, to, to sort of create this, this almost fantasy online radical uh, version of themselves. So, yeah, I think the one of the reasons why the, the uh, Western left or the Western developed world has become increasingly introspective and ineffective um, is, is because of these two changes. Yeah. So on the one hand, these people don't really need uh, to, to bring about dramatic change because they're doing pretty okay, actually. Um, and on the same hand, uh, sorry, at, at the same time, the methods that they're choosing to do it are not exactly uh, the most effective methods. They're just more effective about sort yeah. of, you know, uh, creating their own sense of identity. Um, since we're talking about methods, before we go on to the examples, because the, the book works through the different uh, groups and each chapter has very lively and interesting uh, titles and really sucks readers in. It, it's a very well-written, very accessible book. Oh, cheers. Um, but let's just talk about, yeah, no, no, it was my pleasure to read it. Let me just ask you a little bit about your method. Are you, You're doing interviews. What what? Tell tell the audience just a little bit about how you came, how you wrote the book. So yeah, I think there are a few different methods used really. So on the one hand, uh, I'm looking at my own sort of historical research uh, in archives and, and and all the rest of it over the past few years. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I conduct interviews with with figures uh, uh, in in labor unions, in politics, in business, that sort of thing, in, in media. Um, and I also um, make a sort of extensive use of statistics and surveys, you know, polls and, and polling data and that sort of thing as well. So there's all sorts of quantitative and quali qualitative data that I've drawn on uh, to write the book. But yeah, as you say, it's I, I deliberately wanted to avoid a, a more sort of, you know, uh, um, 
sterile academic style you know i wanted it to be quite sort of pugnacious and accessible and i might even think you know definitely i think i i i don't really pull my punches when i uh, critique some of the journalists and activists who i think are to blame for this transformation of the left um so yeah the, the, it has uh, several thematic chapters um each chapter focuses on one issue where i think that uh the hobbyist left as i call them um uh, you know, use this issue to sort of demonstrate or demarcate their identity and how different they are from everyone else. But I argue in each chapter that they don't particularly care about this issue so much they care about themselves, right? So the first chapter is on uh, so-called uh, identity politics or eth- ethnic identity politics. And as you said, it's it's mostly, mostly focused on the UK because I think as far as I'm aware that in the US, because of the demographic differences in the US, you actually have large groups of African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans and Asian-Americans who are standing up for their own rights and interests and so on. And you don't have that so much in the UK, right? Because the UK is a much whiter country than the US and politics certainly in the UK is, is, is much whiter um, in the UK than it is in the US. Put it this, you know, if Bernie Sanders was running against Joe Biden in the UK, Joe Biden would have no chance, right? Because there just aren't the, uh, you know, the non-white voters to, to get Joe Biden there. That's what, you know, Bernie Sanders would, uh, would win. Anyway, so in the chapter on identity politics, for example, I say that often views which are sort of uh, attributed to different groups or, you know, voting behavior. I mean, even the idea of, of having these different groups as essentialized blocks, you know, where uh, British Muslims think this way or African-Americans think this way. Very often, this does not reflect the complexity and the variety of political opinion amongst specific, you know, ethnic or religious groups of people. In fact, it actually represents a sort of neo-Orientalist white idea about how, you know, black people think or about how Muslims think and so on. And so for each of the chapters, really, uh, I focus on quite controversial issues like ethnic identity politics, like immigration, uh, patriotism, Israel-Palestine, transgender rights, feminism. And for each of these issues, I don't really step in myself and say what should be done, you know, not least because on many of these issues, I'm not sure I have much of a right to. But instead, I, I talk about how the Western left can use these issues, apparently because they have a concern for the groups affected. And I argue that in reality, if you look at what they do, because their actions are so, you know, not effective, right? Uh, you know, I was just trying to think the other day, I, I'm trying to think of any concession from the Israeli government, which, you know, the BDS uh, movement has actually brought about. You know, So my, my point is, because their actions don't appear to be that effective, and because the people in uh, these these groups tend to derive such a huge sense of personal satisfaction from these idea, uh, from these actions, I am arguing that they don't really care about the groups they're supposed to care about. They're doing it for their own benefit. So before we go into the the chapters, because I think it would be, you've done a nice job on the ethnic identity one, but I'd like to talk a little bit more detail of the others. I I do want to say to the listeners that I think you're underselling what you do in the book just a little bit. So I'll oversell it. Um, Okay, great. This is is a very well-literatured book. Book. So it is true that this is written to be accessible, and certainly, um, you know, your 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 average serious nonfiction reader would pick it up with no problem. But threaded throughout the book is a familiarity with the the what we would call the academic mm-hmm. literature. Um, so I think it's a really provides an interesting balance between moving between Richard Rorty and the people that you interview, uh, journalists and activists. So just just so listeners understand that. And I think, I mean, I think it's difficult to find that, that balance as you are writing serious nonfiction on politics between the literature and, um, you know, having a formal lit review, but having it threaded through. And I, I do think it's here supporting uh, the text. Uh, that's so, great, Susan. Very, very yeah, kind of you to yeah. say that, by the way. And I should say, yeah, one of, I mean, one of the ways, in many ways, this book was quite easy to write, and this was for a few reasons. On the one hand, I'd been sort of thinking about these issues for a long time, and my own sort of background, if you want to get into this later, really sort of threw into stark light, you know, this issue of the left being abandoned by its traditional supporters and becoming a, a sort of more, um, not just bourgeois, but more of a sort of insular, introspective organizer uh, group. But also, I think because I'd 
I'd almost coincidentally done a great deal of, of reading around these topics, almost about trying to, you know, I'd read so much soci- uh, sociology and critical race theory and so much gender theory and feminist theory and all this sort of stuff. That actually, when I came to write the thing, I thought, you know what, I actually am pretty familiar with a lot of the academic literature in these different areas. Um, so yeah, actually writing the book didn't take as long as it might have done, I think, because I was quite familiar with a lot of this um, material. No, it definitely comes through. Well, uh, tell us about your background rather than waiting for later. What, what do you think is relevant for us to know? Well, I mean, the first thing I want to say is just a sort of uh, translator's note, right? So I know apparently in, in the US, the phrase middle class is often used sort of like a code for working class. You know, when you, you, you really mean working class, but you want to be polite, maybe. So you say middle class. But of course, in, in the UK, that isn't the case, right? In the UK, we use working class and, and we mean it. So anyway, right. um, I'm from Liverpool which is a big city in the UK, a big sort of, you know, classic post-industrial city, well-known now for being the birthplace of the Beatles and also Liverpool uh, Football Club, which is a very famous soccer team. Um, and nowadays it is a, a labor heartland, right? It is has some of the, the, the uh, you know, the, the safest labor districts or seats in the entire country. But this has not always been the case. And anyway, when I was a kid growing up in the 90s, Whilst every you know Liverpool was a religiously labor voting place, um, people themselves didn't have necessarily very left wing attitudes when it came to stuff other than the economy, right? So people would generally be very left wing economically, but this is a very white working class city, you know, even to this day, considering it's one of the biggest cities in the UK, it must be one of the whitest uh, even now, despite being a port city. And people's attitudes on things such as immigration and race and sexuality and gender and, uh, you know, uh, sort of crime and punishment and personal responsibility were pretty, you know, conservative, right, with with a small c. And nonetheless, these people would religiously vote Labour. And then I went to university and it was completely the inverse, right? Suddenly, this was an exceptionally privileged uh, establishment institution where, you know, most people at that uh, institution came from a very small section of, of British society. And yet, of course, the people I hung around with were, you know, perfectly left wing on every single possible issue, you know, completely consistently from, uh, I don't know, LGBT to, to race and gender and everything in between and class and economics. And I thought that's interesting that, you know, such diverse groups of people from very from opposite ends of the um, sort of a socioeconomic spectrum in the UK still supported the same political party. And I was really wondering how long can this continue, really? Uh, because I thought it might be hard to sustain this when, you know, ultimately on non-economic issues, there was a great deal of divergence. And I remember, uh, you know, whilst I was at university, it was the uh, Barack Obama's first election. And I remember him being stopped on the campaign trail by Joe the Plumber, if you remember Joe the Plumber. Um, sure. Yeah, Joe the Plumber's. So Joe the Plumber's argument with Obama was, you know, I earn like $200,000 a year and your plans are going to hurt me, which I think caused a lot of people in the UK to think, hang on, this guy earns $200,000 a year and he's pretending, you know, he's, he's the, the idea is that he's this working class guy, right? But Aside from the whole financial thing, I thought that the confrontation between Obama and Joe Diploma really presaged a, something that was going to be a huge issue for the left going forwards, right? Because here you have, okay, this Joe Diploma guy might have employed several people and earned, you know, a very nice uh, amount of money. But his whole shtick was, you know, I'm this ordinary good old boy, you know, white working class guy. You're this fancy Harvard educated, you know, lawyer and an academic and all the rest of it. You're wine track and beer track, you know, all this sort of stuff. And and it was the discomfort when, um, of Obama and, and, and people around Obama in dealing with this guy that even though obviously he, he won in 2008 pretty pretty easily, I thought this does not look good for the future of the left, right? You know, why are there so few people on the left who are comfortable in this situation talking to people like Joe the Plumber? Incidentally, whilst I'm not necessarily the world's biggest Joe Biden fan, I thought it was really interesting to see Joe Biden a couple of weeks ago you know, before the whole Corona thing began, seems like a different world, where he confronted some guy and said, you know, you're full of, if you don't mind my language, you know, you're full of shit. Yeah, And it was interesting to see this, right? Because Joe Biden was perfectly comfortable being surrounded, you know, it, it, it really up close and personal debating with these guys in a way that I just can't imagine any other prominent, prominent Democrats doing. Anyway. Well, it's, yeah, well, you know, in, when 
some of the appeal that Biden has here in the States is that he is from the middle class. He is, he's not pretending he, he's from a place in which he has not attended the elite institutions. Obama is interesting because it's Michelle Obama who actually comes from a working class background. It's her father who is a, a factory worker is somebody who uh, is, is so she has that experience of rising from the working class into elite social circles. Obama doesn't have that. He he begins in the middle class and he moves upwards, but it's not the same. And so I think Biden doesn't need a translator, whereas Obama used Michelle Obama as his translator. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's it. You know, how how very few high-profile left-wing politicians anywhere now uh, don't need a translator anymore, you know? And, okay, there, there's a reason for this, right? Because the sort of background where these old-school politicians used to come from is, incre- is, you know, is increasingly shrinking, right? There are very, mm-hmm. very, very few people now who work in these sorts of occupations who come from these sorts of neighborhoods. Okay, so that will be replicated in politics. Fine. But my point is that, you know, the sort of professionalization of politics and this applies, you know, the fact that this applies just as much as the left as the right means that it's almost as though you're going to get sooner a specific class of politicians who've all been to the same schools, who've all had the same life experiences. And I think it's patronizing to assume that they will be able to reach out and talk to different groups of people simply because they've read a lot of uh, theory about these people, you know, and they've read a lot about them, but they don't necessarily understand them. And two years after Joe de Plummer, here in the UK during a general election, we had our own version uh, called Jill the Bigot. Uh, and this was where the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown uh, is on the campaign trail. And he's confronted by this woman uh, in a town called Rochdale. This woman's called Jill. And, you know, this woman as sort of, you know, 60, 70-year-old uh, Labour voters uh, all want to do, started complaining about immigration and moaning about the number of immigrants. And Brown dealt with it fairly well and then got back into his car and he didn't realize his microphone was still on. And he says, oh, you know, what a horrible, bigoted woman. And I remember watching this in 2010 and thinking, oh, God, you know, that is the election lost right there, right? Because it, it sort of confirmed exactly what so many people felt about Labour, right? That, you know, we would nod and, and make, so, you know, if someone was complaining about immigration, we would say, oh, you know, you have a fair point, but actually, and, and try and address. But actually, in reality, we all thought, oh, God, will this bigot just stop talking, you know? And... This is, I am not, you know, I'm by no means sort of condoning what Gillian Duffy was complaining about or, or making any point here about immigration. The point is actually about how, uh, you know, the actual beliefs of so many of the people on the left are actually very different from those people who traditionally voted for them and whom we still want to vote for us. And we sort of have to pretend that they aren't. And we get caught out sometimes, like Gordon Brown did. When he, re- you know, he left his microphone on and he had a hot mic in the car. Um, but actually, you know, this is what so many people, it, it's very rare to find somebody, uh, a Labour member of parliament, who doesn't think that expressing such views about immigration are bigoted. Uh, so it's tough. So, it, I mean, the tone I've picked up in the book is that, you know, you're not nostalgic mm-hmm. to go back to some, you know, glorious, shining leftist past. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're also, and you don't think that the shift to focuses on ethnicity, gender, and sexuality are a mistake. Nope, not, neither not. of those at all. So what, and, and as you're talking here, it seems clearer to me that you uh, recognize that there is this break that the nationalist right is able to exploit, which is that there is an economic desire, but not necessarily an agreement on social issues. And that's what's being exploited. What would your recommendation to the left be? What, what, is, what would you want the left to do if you could wave the magic wand? I think there's a few things, but I think one of the key things is to really focus on substantive uh, substantive change, substantive difference, and not just language and, and sort of image. So to take an example from the UK, one of the um, you know uh, arguments used to attack Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party recently is, oh, they're racist. You know, they've, they've overseen a racist immigration policy. They're trying to kick out uh, Britons of colour. They're a racist organisation, the Conservative Party. But of course, after, you know, now the Conservative cabinet under Boris Johnson is the most ethnically diverse ever. 
But of course, so what, right? You know, just just because they have an ethnically diverse cabinet, this doesn't necessarily mean it's reflected in in their in their views or in their policies. But so much of what the left focuses on actually is this sort of aesthetic, superficial idea of difference. You know that if you do if you have you know a certain number of people in certain positions, then this is inherently a good thing, right? Um, you know, if you have uh, a sort of uh, boardrooms and um, government uh, executives, which honestly reflect the demographics of the population, then by itself, that is a great thing. And it's almost like that's an end in itself. Whereas I would say to the left, you know, this sort of stuff really isn't, you know, this sort of superficial thing to do with language and image really isn't important. The only thing that matters is actual policy, which in order to affect policy, you need to get into power. So I would definitely say to the left, you know, stop focusing on on college campuses and stop focusing on social media and all this stuff, because you can control college campuses, you can control social media. The left clearly does in both uh, Britain and the US. And what does it get us? You know, what what is all this, you know, Gramscian, Gramscian sort of march, you know, through these uh, institutions actually won for us? You know, nothing. I would much rather live in a world where, you know, you had... Um, a sort of, you know, leftist governments in control. But uh, academia was far more politically diverse and Hollywood and media was far more politically diverse than it is nowadays. Uh, because the fact that, you know, the left, and I, I go from meaning, you know, the sort of socialist-ish liberal left to the more, you know, Wall Street Democrats uh, of, of Hollywood or whatever, but, you know, liberals, shall we say, with, with a lowercase l, uh, liberals clearly are dominant in all of these fields, right? In Britain and the US, you know, media, uh, academia, um, so often in the civil service as well. Uh, it doesn't do anything. You know, it doesn't get us anything, right? So you need to just completely ruthlessly focus on actually winning races and getting into power. And that is the only thing that matters. Even if you maybe apparently have to compromise your values to do it, fine. The right compromise their values all the time. You know, um, in the UK recently, we've seen the Conservative Party, um, not just because of the coronavirus, but actually before the recent UK election, completely abandon its its long-standing policy of sort of you know fiscal rectitude and balancing the the. the the budget and all the rest of it, and pledge that they're going to spend hundreds of billions here, there, and everywhere. Uh, and they've done this deliberately because they knew they would have to do this to win the election, right? Whether they're not, they're actually going to do that in, in practice is neither here nor there to them because they focus on what they need to do to win the election. And then when in power, they can they can use the tools of the state to you know sort of shift the agenda and, and and shift the narrative. I really wish the left would understand this actually that you know if you get into power. Um, you can make these decisions. You can you can have this sort of transformational change, which will change the narrative, which will uh, shift the Overton window of what is considered possible and what is considered acceptable. But in order to do this, you just you have to get into power. And yeah, I think that so many people on the left make the mistake of thinking that extra, you know, stuff that is that is that feels political but isn't really political, like stuff on social media and 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 stuff like that. It's not doing anything for you. You know, you can you can dominate Twitter and, and Facebook, all the rest of it. It's not going to necessarily do anything for you. So, so is your argument, David, I, I'm, I'm having trouble, that, that that the left is saying the wrong things, that they're that they're they're hitting the wrong notes or are they going to the wrong places? Are they emphasizing? Are they feeling self-satisfied on Twitter because they dominate? Are they feeling self-satisfied at the universities because they can be in an echo chamber? Or when you say the liberals need to, to compromise as they, as they move through an election cycle, what is it that are you, are you, what are you saying they should back off on, not say or say? Okay, so I mean, actually, the two different things that you mentioned are, are interlinked, right? I think it's because the left is going to the wrong places that we're, we're talking to ourselves and people like us, uh, and we, you know, we we follow on, on media people like us and deal with people like us. So we are in this echo chamber where we just listen to people like ourselves and assume that we are, you know, uh, dominant and and uh, everything's great. And because of that, we say the wrong things, right? So, but in terms of saying the wrong things, I think broadly, there's a great deal. Uh, in the Labour Party's platform in the UK and in uh, the, the Democrats' platform, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, whoever, all of these people have many policies which are really popular, you know, very popular, not just with left-wing voters, but also with centrist voters and even some voters on the right, 
Yep. You know, there, there's plenty of Americans, uh, you know, have opinions on all sorts of things like climate change and, I don't know, reproductive rights, say, uh, and immigration, which are to the left of the, the Republican Party's, you know, current stance on these issues. Uh, but often the left then uh, either or it focuses on, you know, the most divisive issues. So it says, all right, all that stuff that, you know, you, you largely agree on, fine. We'll, we'll take that for granted. What about all this stuff that you don't agree on? Why don't you agree with us on this, right? Or they take these issues and they just take them as far as possible. So, for example, uh, you know, so many policies coming from the left of the Democrats recently, which uh, have now become more and more mainstream, I would say. But still, there are certain things like uh, abolishing ICE, right? Or, uh, you know, abolishing private, like forcibly abolishing private healthcare, which obviously we haven't even done in, in the UK. You know, people can still get private healthcare if they want. These sorts of things alienate people. And actually, they will alienate people away from the more moderate and popular positions of immigration reform and amnesties and all that sort of stuff. Um, or, you know, Medicare for all um, and nationalized healthcare, which lots of people might be more susceptible to. But if instead of focusing on that, you know, you focus on the more extreme position, then you're just going to put you're going to put people off. Um we're not going to be able to get through all of the chapters, but I, I definitely wanted to ask you a little bit about the two chapters on gender. One is on women's activism, what you call left-wing hobbyism there, and the other is on gender identity and the few dividing feminists. So I was wondering if you could tell listeners just a little bit about what your claims are there. Yeah. So I think well, let's start with the, with the transgender chapter first, I think, because it's, it's, it's more straightforward to meet my claim here. So whereas the whole point of the book is talking about left-wing hobbyism, right, or performative radicalism, where people adopt these uh, policy positions to say something about themselves, right? Their politics is similar to their, you know, favorite sports team or, the, you know, a type of brand of clothes they like or the car they want to drive or whatever. Um, and I think that certain issues really suit this kind of hobbyism. And I think that transgender rights is a perfect issue for this. Now, the first thing I want to say is I don't, you know, I support trans rights and, and, and great, you know, I, I don't really have um, on the sort of um, sticky issues around gender identity and, and so on. Um, I don't really give my opinion because as a sort of you know, cisgender man, you know, I don't have any skin in the game. And this is my point here, actually, that, you know, so few people are trans that it's a perfect thing for, uh, you know, uh, white cisgendered you know guys to pick up on uh because you know historically on the left people have always said oh you know you're not poor why do you care about the poor or you're not black why do you care about blacks and obviously that's a terrible argument but it's been there but nobody can say to you oh you're not trans why do you care about trans people because hardly anyone's trans you know so few people are trans that it's even from this sort of reactionary idiot thing who'd say to someone you're not black why do you care about black nobody would even say you know you're not trans why do you care about trans because so few people are right so in the chapter i certainly do not attack uh, actual trans people i do instead attack uh, men and they are usually men and some women uh not trans men not trans women who use this issue as a way to attack uh feminists usually women right so in the uk recently we've had well i mean jermaine greer the australian academic uh who said some you know pretty outrageous things about trans people but also people like um in the uk we've got this woman linda bellos and uh, julie bindle now both of these two women are feminists they are lesbians they've been getting attacked from the right for decades they're also they're socialists as well right so for decades and decades and decades these women were attacked by the right for being lesbians, for being feminists, for being socialists. And they were very much perceived as being hard left for the past 30 years. Now, of course, uh, they, well, not of course, but they, like a lot of old school feminists, are quite skeptical about trans rights. And for this reason, a whole new generation of young people, you know, in their late teens, 20s, who, you know, were not even born when these women were being beaten up and abused and attacked by, by, by bigots, are now using the fact that they are willing to say or, you know, accede to certain principles of trans rights and these, uh, this older generation of feminists or not. They're using this as a means for them to attack these older generation of feminists, you know, and position themselves as this 21-year-old white undergraduate at a fancy college is to position himself as a victim, actually, and to position himself as more of a feminist than these, you know, women in their 50s who've been 
feminists for decades. So I think in the trans chapter, I'm not talking about the trans issue, uh, trans issues itself at all, really. Instead, I'm talking about how this issue can be used by the cynical and the disingenuous as a way to make themselves seem more cool and more interesting. And again, in the chapter on women's activism, on feminism, uh, yeah, I'm talking about how, okay, why, uh, you know, when we consider that support for gender equality, you know, when you phrase things like, you know, do you think that men and women are equal and should be treated equally? Do you think men and women should earn the same amount? All this sort of stuff. When you ask questions like that, you know, you get really high levels of people responding that, yes, indeed, they do, right? You know, they, they do believe in equality and all the rest of it. And they do think that there should be, you know, equal pay between men and women. However, if you ask the same uh, people, are you a feminist? Do you consider yourself to be a feminist? Normally, it's it's around, it's, it's actually slightly higher in the US, but it's still under 20% of people, um, men or women, by the way, w- would say that, yes, I do describe myself as a feminist. So in the chapter on feminism, I'm really you know trying to, to, to understand what this is about. And again, I think that there has developed such a thing you know, as feminism, almost in, in what you call it, air quotes in the US, we call it inverted commas, you know, feminism <laughs> with the sort of, you know, uh, 20 years either side, whereby it's it's more of a, of an, of an, I don't know, an identity or a club that you want to be a member of. So I am a feminist. It's almost like a brand that you can have, you know, to, again, to, to put right there on your social media bio, feminist right here. Yeah. So again, it's less about what you believe in and what you want to see change in the world but it's more about what you are. And I think this can be a problem, right? Because it clearly lends itself to disingenuous people who aren't actually that interested in changing things, but are very interested in being seen and recognized and understood as a feminist. This can particularly be bad with, you know, young men, right? So there's a a section in this chapter on um, the idea of woke misogyny, right? Which is something that a lot of uh, US authors, US women authors have been writing about, whereby, you know, young young guys, not always at college, but, you know, around that sort of age, who will very much identify as a feminist and, you know, probably have it in their Twitter bio and certainly tell young women that they meet, oh yeah, I'm very much a feminist. But of course, that is not reflected in their attitudes towards women or, you know, or, or anything that they do really. So again, as with the other chapters, I'm talking about how the sort of nature of of of, of sort of left wing identity nowadays and how it is almost so, so postmodern, flexible, and pliable allows people to simply identify as being feminists without actually doing a damn thing for women's rights. I want to ask you a little bit about COVID-19. I know the book wasn't written in this context um, and all books are written far before they're published, but you mentioned it earlier. As you look at the left and how how the left might think about COVID-19, how the left might talk about COVID-19, either as uh, indirectly or directly related to uh, the crisis of capitalism. What, what what are your thoughts on on this, as particularly how the left would talk about it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting and could be a bit of a game changer in some ways. You know, I mean, people often overreact to these things, uh, you know, these sorts of you know unusual events, and say, right, you know, this is a, a game changer. This is things will not be the same afterwards. And then, very often, unfortunately, um, or fortunately, in some cases, things are you know pretty much the same, and things don't really change. So, I don't want to go too far down the road of I think this is going to change a lot of things. However, I certainly think it might. I think it would have been very. I mean, the first thing is that if it looked as though Trump was going to, you know, be re-elected this November, um, mostly because of the Electoral College, actually. But there we are. Um, and now I think that this could completely, as as well he knows, of course, you know, this could completely destroy his re-election. So that could be a, an important thing right there. I also think that if this thing had happened a year earlier, maybe Bernie Sanders would have done better than he has done in the primaries, because I think certain issues around the need for healthcare to not be, you know, dependent on affordability or sorry, you know, the, the need for access to healthcare to not be dependent on one's ability to pay for it has been shown in such stark light by this virus. I mean, you've got even people like Ted Cruz uh, and other people on the right of the Republican Party saying, you know, we need to have free testing for all, you know, we, we can't afford to have, you know, the usual sort of private insurance mechanisms when it comes to this virus. So I think... Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so many issues, uh, again, if you look at the huge sort of economic programs being rolled out by governments to subsidize wages and all the rest of it, you know, in, in many ways, it seems to be endorsing some of the economic, uh, excuse me, economic arguments of the left around uh, the need for, uh, you know, uh, accessible healthcare for all, around the sort of precarity. I mean, it's really just shown how many jobs in, in, in Western economies are, are bullshit jobs, you know, whereby you have no security, you are neither employed, uh, you are technically self-employed, but you're not really self-employed, right? You know, these gig economy jobs where, you know, not only uh, is there no security, but it's actually pretty difficult for the government to actually try and help you out because, you know, you're neither one nor the other. You're not really, um, uh, you know, employed or self-employed. So, so many issues around um, the precarity of employment, around the gig economy, around healthcare, around the, the need for the state to have a role in the economy have seemingly been endorsed by this virus. Who knows the effects of this afterwards, it could well be. I think, I think personally, it will give a bit of a boost to the left. Uh, it might be that there's a reaction uh, of the exact opposite. Who knows? We shall see. So I think the virus could be a good thing for the left in that sense. And I also think coming from the position that I'm talking about in the book and hobbyism and all, all these issues, it's been great in terms of that, right? I mean, I remember in, you know, because all of these issues seem to have completely ceased. So in the UK, and I think you've been doing it in some cities in the US, there's a thing now where in the UK, it's eight o'clock on a Thursday night, you know, people stand at the windows on their, on their balconies and they applaud for the, uh, you know, for the healthcare providers and the first responders and all the rest of it. And I remember hearing this the other day, and it was really interesting how popular it was. You know, I live in London, which is obviously very much a sort of, you know, quite atomized place. I don't know any of my neighbors or anything like that. And yet, to my surprise, everyone on my street was standing at the windows applauding, you know, which is which is quite interesting. And it reminded me of a thing from a few months ago where it was announced that the Oxford University Students Association had banned clapping, right? They'd actually banned applauding uh, because they said it was insensitive to maybe people with autism or things like that. I mean, again, I, I, I really do wonder how many people uh, did do object to clapping, but whatever. And instead they replaced it with jazz hands. Right? I believe in the US it's quite, it's quite common to replace it with clicking instead. And I was just thinking, you know, it's a good job that didn't catch on because we'd never be able to hear people doing jazz hands, would we? You know, you couldn't really hear it. And it just remained, it was was because this issue about the jazz hands and the clapping was only for a few months ago, it seemed like it was from another world. You know, I was really shocked to be reminded that a few months ago before this virus hit, the sorts of of, of nonsense issues that that were preoccupying us, you know, these tiny internecine disputes um, on university campuses, in in certain areas of the media, on socially on social media, amongst the left, which was so pathetic and so self destructive and so insular, seem seem to have been at least temporarily banished by this virus, which is really serious actually, and, and demonstrates how you know how uh, economic inequality and, and and structural racism and all this sort of stuff really does mean that some people are more vulnerable than others in very meaningful and important ways. So I actually think, although it is early days yet, and who you know, only a fool would try and predict the future, really. But I actually think that this virus could be a good thing for the left in two different ways. Firstly, because I think it seems to endorse a lot of the uh, economic arguments of the left, uh, but also because hopefully it might um, really undermine the, the the sort of you know undermine the the feuding and conflict around these quite niche superficial issues and really let us focus on what's important. The book is written for general audience and um, as you're talking to audiences, how, how is their reception to this? Are you speaking to the, 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 the people? Uh, don't take this the wrong way, but you know, part of the way through, I thought, wow, is maybe he's a hobbyist. Um, um, <laughs> And, and then I realized, no, but as you're speaking to the people that you wish were speaking for themselves, what has been the reaction? And as you're speaking to the niche people whom you're criticizing ruthlessly, how are they reacting? You know what? It's interesting because I think, I mean, generally the reaction that I've received has been overwhelmingly positive. Um and I think that there will definitely be people who aren't happy, but either they're not reading it, they're not being made aware of it, or they're not responding to me, right? It's, it's interesting. Um, so I think 
there's a I knew when I was writing it that there's a, a broad swathe of people on the left, on the center, and also on the political right who would really love the book, right? They go, Oh, we hate these people, we've been, you know, hate these assholes. It's great to see someone criticize them. So those sorts of people, people who are on the left but hate the hobbyist left, or indeed on the center and the right, they've responded to it quite well as as I assume they would. The interesting thing has been the response of people who I might consider to be hobbyists, right? And actually again, because uh, I do know such people and, you know, some of them my friends. Uh, and generally, I think the reaction has been pretty good. I think often their reaction has been, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Of course, I'm not like this. But, I, I, you know, many of my friends are, you know, and I know lots of people. people like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think that's the reaction among some people. Um, and, yeah, I think one of the – because I think I do – I think it's hopefully clear that I do write this from a place of I want to improve the left and hope and make the left actually, you know, or – do what I can to help the left. So I think people do pick up on that and, and realize that I write this from a place of affection and frustration and wanting to help rather than writing it from a place of just, you know, taking a, you know, a criticizing and just taking shots at for no good reason. So actually, I think that the response that I've heard that has got back to me so far has been generally quite positive. I'm sure that there are lots of people out there who would hate the book um, but either they're not reading it, or if they are reading it, they're not getting back to me via social media or any way like that to criticize me. Um, I think also, not to sort of blow my own trumpet too much, but I think that it is actually really quite well referenced and evidenced and all the rest of it. You know, there's, um, I think it's quite difficult, whilst you might take issue with the tone and, and some of the arguments, I think empirically it might be quite difficult to to attack if you know what i mean because i really did put a lot of research in and i've made sure that uh you know all my arguments are well backed up and stuff so i think maybe some people who might disagree with my general gist but they find it quite hard to like focus on specific things to disagree with i'm not sure i mean i definitely welcome more negative criticism so if any hobbyists out there are listening and you know you, you don't like what i've got to say please get in touch um, well, thank you so much, David. And 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 I would say, David is on Twitter, and get in touch with him, and or comment uh, on 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 my Twitter feed about what you think about the interview. Um, David Swift's "A Left for Itself: Left Wing Hobbyists and Performative Radicalism" is published by Zero Books. Um, it's available on IndieBound. It's available on your general providers like Barnes and Noble and Amazon. I've recently been using in the United States bookshop.org and I highly recommend it to listeners. It is an easy to use platform in which you can pick local bookstores and the prices are very, very uh, comparable to the bigger brand. Um, David, is there a London bookshop that I know is likely closed right now, but when it reopens, you would recommend people go find your book? Yep. So it's it's generally available at sort of radical and left wing bookshops in the UK. Uh, in London, one I went to recently called the South London Gallery in Peckham. Uh, you can go and pick it up there. But yeah, generally check with your local independent bookstore when this thing's reopen. Uh, sorry, when the whole you know when they reopen afterwards. Uh, but yeah, also it's it's freely available online at all the usual online retailers. Well, thanks so much, David, for talking to us today. Oh, great. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. 